0: This is The Law School Show, discovering the person behind the resume, bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello, uh, my name is William Lundy. I'm your host of The Law School Show. Our guest for today is Jacob Stillman jacob stillman has been practicing as a criminal defense attorney since 1989 and has represented thousands of clients at trials appeals and hearings he completed a master's in law degree from osgood hall law school in 2017 with a focus on criminal law evidence and corporate regulatory offenses mr stillman is a frequent commentator on current legal issues as a contributor to the lawyers daily and Advocate daily He's been published in a leading medical journal, as well as contributing a chapter on an upcoming legal book. Uh, Mr. Silman, welcome to the Law School Show. Thanks very much. I should be aware that well, it's not an
1: upcoming book anymore. It was published just around the time uh, this was on uh, this was on can- the, the the changes to the cannabis ra- uh, laws in Canada, and that book came out, I think, at the late in 20- twenty. Late in 2018, actually. So it's been out for a while.
0: Oh, oh, nice, nice. And what was the title of the book? It's called High
1: Time, which was a little bit of a play on words. And it was put out by McGill Queen's uh, Academic Press. It's not a stoner book. It, it, uh, it was a serious uh, sort of academic take on uh, various implications of the... Uh, at that point, upcoming changes to, uh, to our cannabis laws, legalization and everything else. My, my contribution in that book was about the impaired by cannabis in a motor vehicle context, the impaired driving implications and how they were, they were trying to adjust the laws to apply to cannabis intoxication Sort of as an adjunct to our uh, what we normally think of as impaired driving, which is about ninety-eight percent was always involved alcohol intoxication behind the wheel. So, how do you reconcile legalized cannabis use with the potentially elevated risk to road safety if everybody's driving around stoned?
0: Mm-hmm. And what was your uh, what was your take? Well, I mean, it
1: gets a little technical because I examined the changes to the proposed legislation and some of the problems that that the legislation was anticipating and trying to account for the problems that were like are likely to unfold because I mean we can have a whole hour long discussion just on uh, cannabis and Cannabis impaired driving. If we wanted to, but uh, the the legislation, much like driving legislation, much like alcohol impaired driving legislation, the cannabis impaired driving legislation that's incorporated into the same laws now, set what you call a per se level of what amounts to unlawful THC concentration in your blood. So. It got set at a certain level and now I think it's, uh, what is it, five five nanograms per ml of blood the same way that you have um, alcohol set at 80 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood. If you have five nanograms of THC in your per ml of blood, that would be a a per se offense. Same way, you, same way you've got the over 80 offenses. But there's a lot of problems with that because it's a lot harder to test for that. Uh, you can have residual effects uh, where you know, somebody is really, uh, the, the drug is not psychoactive, but you can still have elevated THC in your system. There's a host of problems. Frankly, while I anticipated an awful lot of work (laughs) coming down the line uh, as police forces uh, ramped up for uh, cannabis-impaired law enforcement. That hasn't really materialized, at least not in my experience. You do get some impaired by drug situations, but I think the police are really shying away from uh, laying uh, cannabis uh, impairment charges it's a lot harder to detect and it's a lot harder to enforce despite the tools that they are supposedly have at their disposal.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, just um, taking a, a step back, thinking about years ago when uh, you were, uh, graduated from law school, what sort of got you interested in, in doing criminal law? Well,
1: coming out of law school, I actually did my articles on a union side uh, labor firm and i knew that i would enjoy the you know litigation game uh, as it were the you know the, the fun courtroom type adversarial sort of uh battleground as it were So uh, it it turned out to be a good fit, I guess, for my abilities and my interests, and uh, there was a job opportunity. I started working for an experienced criminal lawyer and stayed with it, found that I had an aptitude for it, and uh, haven't looked back.
0: Was Was there a reason you decided to do defense work rather than trying to become a crown?
1: Well, again, you know, part of it is just force of circumstance. This was the job offer that that came up. It was defense side, and uh, off I went. I, I do think that I'm would never have really derived the same satisfaction as a crown attorney. It's a somewhat not 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 to denigrate the job that crowns do at all, uh, not 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 in the least. It's just that the approach is different uh it's a little bit more mechanical at times or at least uh, at the outset and there's something i guess just uh innate about uh representing the the underdog rather than the state that 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 appeals to me uh again i i uh, absolutely have complete respect for my Colleagues on the other side. Uh, it's not to say that they're. Uh, they're not, I don't want to suggest at all that I'm devaluing the work that crown attorneys do. It's essential.
0: I wonder if you ever got the question um, that I think you know, sometimes uh, you, you might hear in, in law school. If you, you tell people you're interested in criminal law, they'll, they'll often say, "Well, how could you, <laughs> you know live with uh, you know?" somebody who'd committed a a serious crime. How could your conscience uh, wrestle with that? And do do you think, is that a real issue that sort of arises in practice? What's your take on that?
1: Well, it's a question that every criminal law practitioner gets, uh, gets repeatedly from people who uh, are not familiar with the type of work we do, are not familiar with the criminal justice system. And you know quite understandably uh, get their sense of what the criminal justice system is from uh, you know reports in the media and if some horrendous event occurs it's pretty easy to under you know it's pretty understandable why the public will Will sympathize with the victims and uh, not with the guy who just murdered a child or mowed down ten people down Young Street. Uh, That's that's all very understandable, and the question is a very normal one to get. Uh, Uh, Once you, people who have no problem with what we do, (laughs) are crown attorneys and and even the police officers uh, that that we butt up against, um, by and large, in the case of the police. Not not all of them. Some are less sanguine than others about what we do. Uh, But people who work within the system understand its flaws, understand where the weak links are, and understand that what you do as a criminal lawyer is you act, and and this may sound a bit lofty, but really act as a check on unfettered state power. Because what you do as a criminal defense lawyer is you say before Before you send this guy off to jail, you'd better have ticked off all of the boxes to make sure that we're not sending either, in the most extreme cases, an innocent person to the jail. But in other cases, are we sending somebody to jail who really shouldn't, doesn't belong in jail, where there are... Alternate means of registering our disapproval or of accomplishing our uh, goals of deterrence and denunciation without locking people up. So that's that's the first thing. The other thing we do, and you know, the, the Charter has been around since what uh, nineteen eighty one. 1982 i guess when it came into into effect and the other thing we do is we uphold and we are the people that do it it's up to the defense it's not up to the crown we uphold standards of you know sort of writ, writ large individual rights rights against uncontrolled state intrusion into your privacy checks on laws that might overreach or in the case of uh, what what you saw a number what you saw the during the, uh, the, the the conservative stephen harper era is an awful lot of laws that came in where mandatory minimum sentences were imposed a lot of those laws have been struck down that's the work of the defense now people may say oh that's a terrible thing but uh mandatory minimum sentences uh, i mean again looking at sidetracked on this subject uh the mandatory minimum sentences again are can be extremely draconian and disproportionate to the objectives that are uh, the ones that really count you you, you want to understand uh excessive uh, state uh punishment just just look to the south where in the US uh in any they they have the highest rate of incarceration of any uh liberal democracy uh in in the world and ask yourself are you safer <laughs> living in the US or are you safer living in Canada and i think people here, understand would would be pretty well unanimous in, in in where they come down on that on that question. So, you know, uh, those are some of the other things that one does as a on the defense side. We act as a break on government overreach in a larger sense, like so, you know, in terms of the application of statute, in terms of uh, police conduct. Uh, in terms of sometimes, in rare cases, prosecutorial overreach or misconduct. Uh, And, uh, you know, in that sense, um, I think really there are probably two pillars that uphold sort of our civil rights, and one is, you know, a free press, and the other... I don't think it's an overstatement to say is uh an independent and sort of vigorous defense bar i think those are the two pillars that that really the public should uh understand guarantee our or at least assist in upholding the type of society that we actually all want to live in
0: right and um, what would you say to the I mean there's also a, another uh, kind of common view um, that that people may have who aren't necessarily familiar with the system, but that you know, what what criminal lawyers do or what a well, lot of lawyers do is just uh, they you know trying to get people off on on technicalities
1: um, yeah. <laughs> we,
0: of that. we hate that
1: term because uh, uh, that's a very Misused and misunderstood. I mean, technicalities means. I mean, the law is a technicality. So, <laughs> if, if 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 some police officer beats the living, living daylights out of a uh, out of a prisoner and extracts a confession, and you get the confession tossed, well, you know, uh, yeah, uh, that's a technicality. But uh, what you've just done. You know, yes, your your client may be factually guilty, but uh, the, you know it's a cost-benefit analysis. So, do you want to countenance police brutality and you know the use of torture and extracting confessions? Uh, is that a technicality? I I, I think that's a f- fundamental principle that we should all cherish and 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 vigorously defend. So. You know, I mean, what you're talking about, I guess, is is the question of the factually guilty, you know, accused person Mm -hmm. being acquitted. And yes, of course, that happens. That happens all the time. But it happens because of the application of, you know, either laws that are in place to uh, protect against uh, police or state abuse or Principles that have evolved evolved through the jurisprudence, which
0: amount to the same thing. Right now, some people think that um, the the courts have maybe gone too far in some cases. Um, so, for example, there is um, there's a recent case at the Supreme Court, R v Lee, which uh, you you wrote a short piece on, where this. Accused uh, was um, detained by uh, police in a neighborhood in, in downtown Toronto, and um, he was asked what was in his bag, and then he ran, and uh, he was arrested. And in his bag, there was uh, a loaded handgun. And well, they went all this way to Supreme Court, and they 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 tossed out the evidence um, because they they said that uh, the police were, were trespassing on private property. Do you think you no know, some people might say, well? Oh that's how how can that be? <laughs> this dangerous thunder is uh sort of being released. Uh but but uh you you have a different uh opinion.
1: Well, it, you know, it's all part of the same discussion. There there's a continuum that these cases all fall on. And look, there are many cases now where I mean what in the case of firearms, where despite police misconduct, the firearm is admitted into evidence is not excluded. I mean, we, uh, the, the, the defense, and really the crown, so we we sort of all cynically refer to uh, Section twenty four three of the Charter, and just so people understand. Section twenty four two is the principle that gets uh, is, is the heading under which evidence gets excluded if its admission would bring the administration of justice into disrepute. So there's a section, that's section 24-2. We jokingly talk about section 24-3 which is in the case of guns more often than not things do not get excluded. So the exclusion of firearms requires All of this is to say that the exclusion of firearms in case of some sort of breach of one's rights is a a fairly rare occurrence. It takes a significant intrusion on people's privacy rights or some sort of fairly egregious police conduct under you know police brutality or or something akin to that, to get a firearm tossed. So, you know, if somebody's stopped for a motor vehicle offense and a gun is discovered in the car, even if the motor vehicle stop was a little bit questionable. Mm-hmm. Or the search of the vehicle in the circumstances was a little bit questionable, the gun's probably going to get, get, is probably not going to get kicked out. Right. So there's a distinction that's recognized that there are shifting levels, variable levels of one's privacy interest. And somebody walking down the street with a gun in their backpack is going to have a lower expectation of privacy than somebody sitting in their own living room or backyard. So effectively, the law says, well, you know, an intrusion into one's private domain, private property uh, that's unjustified is going to trigger certain privacy interests that may trump the public safety concern of an unlawful firearm, whereas sort of a a legitimate momentary detention of somebody out on the street that results in the finding of a firearm may not result in that intrusion. So it's it's a sliding scale. Mm -hmm. It's very, these cases are often very fact specific. Uh, but those are, I guess, the general parameters that have emerged. It, it, it's a question of evaluating where your privacy interest lies and, and the sanctity or importance of it.
0: Now, um, something that some of us first-year law students read in our criminal law casebook is there's there's this um, uh, article about the adversarial system and uh, maybe the adversarial system actually isn't so adversarial because uh actually a lot of charges get dropped, you know there are lots of plea bargains where you have to come to an agreement with with prosecutors what's your what's your view on that
1: well, I mean if you're saying the whole thing is a farce because cases don't really go to trial um, <laughs> i mean it depends on. What's driving that uh, that 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 trend again, if we look to the south, where you have extraordinarily harsh sentences available to the prosecution, both the state and federal uh, jurisdictional levels mm-hmm. and what that does is it provides the prosecution with enormous leverage and leverage which really distorts the the, the no, our notions of fairness so that you have some kid who's up on his third offense who can either plead guilty for 10 years or can have a trial and get life because they're a third-time offender You know, uh, whereas here the same person in the same circumstances might be looking at, you know, a year and a half in jail. It does, you you know, do we want a system which has gone so far that the mere threat of the consequence of running a trial is enough to just, you know, send people, have people leap at the first offer, even when that offer results in in very, very harsh penalties. That's a distortion, and and that that's something that has really undermined what what I think we think of in terms of what ju- ju- our system of justice should look like. Here, I would say, where we don't have that threat of very draconian penalties hanging over people people can make more rational choices now as a criminal defense lawyer somebody comes to see you they've got a problem they might be dead to rights the evidence might be absolutely overwhelming
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and you're going to benefit by negotiating a resolution to their case and that yeah the honest truth is most of the time your client is fact going to be factually guilty the police are not in the business of just fabricating evidence and 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 framing people that you know i'm not saying that doesn't happen but that doesn't happen very often Mm -hmm. so Chances are you've got somebody who uh, has committed the offense. It is an offense in law, and after evaluating the disclosure and what the po- what what the crown has on your client, you make a rational choice. Uh, you can run a trial that you are bound to lose. It doesn't matter who your lawyer is. There are some incontrovertible facts that you're not going to be able to change in in a courtroom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: or you can get the best offer. I mean, I you know I recently had a had a case where with a very very difficult client who was pretty well dead to rights on a situation where he intruded into an apartment with a loaded firearm. He was looking. At trial, uh, if he wanted to take it to trial, that is a case where a mandatory minimum would kick in because using a firearm in the commission of an offense automatically tax on a five-year sentence. So he's looking at six or seven years if he wanted to take this to trial. Um, the crown offers an arrangement where he can just plead to the firearm for more like a three year sentence and drop the the robbery charge and we proceeded on that basis now then the client who's again very difficult decided he didn't like the job i was doing and uh right at the time that i was going to conduct the plea he said he didn't want my services so he is now probably looking Uh, Because he he is probably going to be looking at a six or seven-year sentence as opposed to effectively a three-year sentence. Um, He's not going to win if he takes it to trial. Yeah. Oh, that's a pretty rational choice. And it's a choice that one would make, you know, with the client in consultation. Uh, And as a lawyer, you would explain to the client the, downside of running a hopeless trial (laughs) which in this case is very acute because it's not a you know it's not a question of uh getting a higher sentence because you've run a trial that you're going to lose in that case it's you're getting a higher sentence because you're going to go down on a on a charge that has a much more significant penal consequence as opposed to taking an offer where you are they are they are dropping the charges that carry with it the mandatory minimums, so it's a it's a rational choice, um, and you get that all you know you get that all the time. And you also, you know, there is a principle in Canadian law where, uh, if you, you know, a guilty plea without a trial is considered mitigating on sentence. So even even if it's not a question of avoiding mandatory minimum charges that carry with it mandatory minimums you know uh, a domestic assault you run a a, a, somebody pleads guilty on a sort of lower end domestic assault uh you know they may they may get a discharge they may get suspended sentence they they might get all kinds of non-incarcerative outcomes but if they insist on running a trial and are found guilty they are going to not get the mitigative effect mitigating effect of a guilty plea and a demonstration of remorse and they're going to get a higher sentence if they lose so you know that's that's look the uh, Our courts would break down if every case went to trial. Yeah, (laughs) Um, there's no way, there's absolutely no way, our system could handle trials on every single case. Uh, So, you know, I don't know what the figures are—ninety percent resolved in in pleas, or possibly even more than that. Well, that's—I don't see that as a flaw in the system i think it's uh, it's 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 something that comes about through the considered evaluation of your client circumstances
0: right and when you're um sort of negotiating um, a plea deal uh is there is there often lots of room to negotiate or is it really just uh yes you, know, so you can sort of take the prosecution's offer of a a lesser charge Pleading guilty to a lesser charge, or, or, or just leave it and run a trial. Well, it, it, it depends on the case. Uh, I
1: mean, um, you know, if if you have uh, if you have an impaired driving charge, there are there, there's there's not a lot of room to negotiate because the penalties are mandatory so if it's a first offense your clients assuming it's just sort of a a garden variety impaired where nobody was hurt and then there were no egregious facts and no accidents or anything like that but uh you know your your client is going to get fined and is going to get uh prohibited from driving for a certain period of time subject to certain uh certain limitations on that uh, if it's a second offence, they're going to get 30 days and a longer driving prohibition. If it's a third offence, they're going to get four, at least four months. Actually, that may have even gone up since the changes. <laughs> I have to check that. Um, and uh, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the and the Crowns do not have a lot of discretion to offer, the, you know, you're pleading guilty to an impaired, you're pleading guilty to an impaired, and and those are the penalties. So you, know, it, 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 you still just have to evaluate at that level whether it's worth it for your client and what your client's position is. Do they want to take a chance on a case that uh, these days has become increasingly easy for the Crown to prove? and take a chance anyway just on you know on the theory that well if you don't buy a lottery ticket you can't win or uh you know do you do uh want to try to i mean in the case of impaired driving you can mitigate uh some of the fallout in terms of the length of the loss of license um certainly in terms of council's fees that might be otherwise uh Thrown out the window, running a running a hopeless case. So uh, you know the, these are again are, are choices for the client to make. Your your job as a lawyer is to spell out the options, and and allow the client to make an informed decision.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, another interesting thing that sort of I uh, read in my criminal law case book is that there's actually a fairly high percentage of uh, charges that get dropped, and um, you'd think, well, hey, we have uh, highly trained uh, police in this country, and sort of you need a warrant before you can search people's property, you need a warrant before you can arrest people. Um, why is it that? I mean, does it happen often that charges get dropped, in your experience, and if so, how does that, why does that happen?
1: Well, yeah, uh, I mean, yes, it's quite normal. So, I mean, take, Take firearms cases for example. If you are in possession of an unlawful firearm, it doesn't just attract one charge. It it actually can attract can attract five or six discrete charges, all of which are described under the criminal code. But what it comes down to ultimately is it's still you know <laughs> one person in possession of one prohibited weapon. Uh, firearm right you know that's that's a case where you, you might head into the proceeding charge with six or seven charges but be pleading guilty to a single offense and it just makes sense because they're all overlapping anyways you know and then look oftentimes say in a domestic situation uh you might have a situation you might have a a case where there's been ongoing domestic abuse for a good chunk of a relationship. So the complainant goes to the police. 98% of the time, that's the woman who's going to the cops complaining about domestic violence. And they'll say, well, you know, uh, in year one, he threatened me. In year... You know, six months later, he pushed me, uh, you know, another year later, he threw a plate at my head uh, and so on and so forth. And and essentially provide the police with a narrative that describes, you know, serial abuse and, you know, five, six, sometimes more, sometimes less discrete occurrences. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you do as if your client is going to plead guilty? Um, what will usually happen is, rather than saddle the person with, you know, a criminal record with six counts of assault, uh, you'll be offered a a single sort of uh, global global charge uh that might isolate on one event but the crown will read in facts about the historic pattern of abuse um you know look if you're a purist and a strong advocate uh, on the domestic violence front you that that might be offensive to some i guess Mm -hmm. you know that that's 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 a legitimate viewpoint but if the crowns were required to first of all you're you know especially when you're getting into to historic events um, the evidence is based entirely on somebody's verbal account there's there's mm-hmm. never any actual physical evidence of such these cases are not necessarily the easiest to prove uh, if uh, your client uh, from the defense perspective, uh, you know, your client may concede that, oh, yes, uh, you know, uh, you know, just before the when, when the cops were called, yes, we did have an argument, and yes, I did I did hit my spouse, uh, but the other stuff uh, didn't happen. Uh, so then you're, so then if you're the crown attorney and the lawyer is coming to you and saying, well, my client will admit to one event, but not the other six um mm-hmm. there's a choice to be made do you take that to trial or do you take what you can i mean uh because if you if you're going to insist on every last you know allegation being put to the test in court you're going to clog up the system as a crown and you're going to be hearing from it pretty soon <laughs> <From above>. Yeah. probably. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, yeah, I mean you can be a purist about it or you but there, the pragmatism is uh pretty significant force in, in in the system. And and sometimes yeah, sometimes the results may be a little bit perverse. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So how much work um has to be done before a client can make an informed decision about whether to plead guilty or not? Like you, you mentioned getting disclosure from the Crown. Um, is that often, um, are there often issues with that, or do Crowns often make it difficult to, for, for defense attorneys to get?
1: No. I mean, uh, you know, in law school you'll learn about the state case of Stinchcomb, which is uh, disclosure is fundamental to the uh, fundamental right under Section 7, but no disclosure generally is not an issue i mean these days there are some complex areas where you're dealing with uh, sexual violence there's all sorts of third party issues if there's records with uh, uh you know medical records or counseling records there's a whole other process there 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 are limitations that are described in the criminal code to uh, how one accesses certain certain materials, but by and large, uh, I mean in your you know, straight kind of linear case, you're going to get all the police notes, any uh, you know all the forensics, anything that's being developed uh, by the police. That's part of the uh, that that's part of their investigation. you'll you'll, you'll get pretty well everything uh sometimes you have to make special requests uh if you know uh, for for certain items and usually there isn't too much resistance as long as uh the crown attorney deems that to be relevant sometimes you sometimes you do get into uh turf wars over what should or should not be disclosed so uh getting disclosure is really not, uh, not a big issue for the most part with, with, with some exceptions. Look, when I, when I get a call from a new client, you know, I'll, I'll obviously consult with that person. I won't have disclosure at that point, but my question to the client is never, you know, did you do this? <laughs> uh, my, my question to the client is you know as far as you know what are they saying you did and as far as you know what is the evidence against you so you want to insulate yourself from a situation where the client inculpates himself fully in your presence and that can restrict your approach and how you defend him so I'm always interested because I you know, and, that, and there's a couple of reasons for this. So I, I'm 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 interested in knowing as soon as possible what what am I looking at here? What am I dealing with? Am I dealing with somebody who is toast, or am I dealing with somebody who uh, has a defendable case? Uh, mm-hmm. And if it's defendable, on what basis that you know they didn't do it, or that there's you know, a, a a a defense such as self-defense or uh, or color of right, or you know, any any number of uh, of uh, potential defenses. Are there are there charter issues that are that are engaged, uh, such that uh, evidence that might be available uh, has been, you know, is excludable. Um, and uh you know and i proceed from there and you know then i'll get the disclosure Uh, and sometimes i'm in for a rude awakening (laughs) 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 The, the, the client has sworn up and down in my presence that they've got nothing and then you you know you see the disclosure and uh and and it's pretty well overwhelming and other times you see the flaws in the case that they have against your client, but you know the 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 question the the approach always has to be can they prove it and that has to be not not did you do it the approach is can they prove it and that's that's always my my opening kind of uh position and then if they can prove it well then you move on to alternative approaches uh, you know that that's when you start thinking about whether your clients going to plead guilty and cut his losses
0: right and um what are, are there kinds of cases which are more likely to which a client is more likely to um want to take to trial and um, does does it happen often that um you know, you get the disclosure, and you think actually the evidence here is not that strong, and it might be worth it to go to
1: trial. Uh, you know, uh, uh, these, as a general rule, it's hard to say. Uh, the, these days, whereas uh, in in the in the in the golden age of impaired driving defense, there were all sorts of approaches you could take many of those have been restricted and are no longer available so uh, i find uh I find with a lot of the impaired, there's really limited options available uh, i mean that's uh that's that's one uh, you know I could say that in sort of general general terms look uh, se- sexual offenses are often highly disputed very often will result is probably more often than, than the most other categories of offenses are going to result in 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 a trial proceeding more than other types of offenses frauds certainly can uh, depending on that. frauds can be very difficult to prove so sometimes you're dealing more with a, a bit of a nuisance offense and nuisance defense I should say where you know it may be abundantly clear that your client has unjustly enriched himself, but you know that there's going to be gaps in what the crown can prove Mm -hmm. because the paper trail is incomplete or whatever other factors get uh, come into play. So really it's, you know, again, it's case. It's going to be case specific.
0: Mm -hmm. And, um, when uh, when you do go to go to trial, what, what's what's it like preparing uh, for a trial? Um, well, I don't know how to answer that.
1: I mean, obviously, any any criminal lawyer always starts with the objective of do i have to call you know the first question is once you get your head around the file is is this a case where i have to call a defense or is this a case where i can defend it effectively uh without calling any kind of defense whether that's using your you know whether your client has to testify or or not you know then the next question is well if i'm calling defense, does my client have to testify so those are you know kind of the the, the first questions you have to get your head around uh, and have an idea uh heading into heading into a, a file um you know and then you're obviously you're you know if there's if there's evidence that you think uh can be excluded because of charter breaches you you know that's a that's another compartment that uh that your your case goes into uh, thorough examination of the disclosure uh if it's you know forensic in nature uh you ask yourself are there uh, flaws in the Continuity of exhibits—is there flaws or, or weak links in the forensic uh, techniques used? Are the uh, are the results ambiguous, open to interpretations? You know, in other ways, you know. So that's that's a separate area to focus on. If it's a case of credit, the credibility of a complainant, you know, a lot of time is always spent. Where you know you're going to be going toe-to-toe with your accuser uh, a lot of time is going to be spent constructing a, a cross-examination strategy to you know maximize the the utility of of of, of the the adversarial process and be able to expose uh, the weaknesses anyway or lack of credibility or improbabilities of of what uh The person pointing a finger at your client to say-
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then of course if it's going to be you know if it's a case where your client has to testify or you have to call other evidence you're going to be spending time uh preparing preparing your witness or witnesses for for trial
0: mm-hmm. and um other um other things you've uh you've learned about the the art of cross examination over the years
1: uh yeah yeah i mean it, it's a it's an essential skill in any defense lawyer especially defense lawyers uh, toolbox i mean because we're always cross-examining and you know the joke is that defense lawyers don't know how to examine in chief and crown attorneys don't know how to cross-examine um, <laughs> uh, because <laughs> crown attorneys are always calling witnesses and we're always cross-examining them and the the opposite is not always true and, you know more often than not we are not calling witnesses so crowns don't get to cross-examine so we each have our own uh, you know uh, requisite strengths um, look you know cross examination is kind of the sexiest part of the business uh, you know that's that's the stuff that you see in all the movies um, and it, uh, and and it's a very interesting uh, process and a skill that does take a long time to develop to develop effectively you know there's many many you know, books and seminars and tutorials and uh all all kinds of uh resources out there uh on on the art of cross examination and it is a real skill
0: mm-hmm. and um other um sort of common mistakes that people make uh, when they're when they're beginning
1: well uh, you know on the subject of cross examination um an inexperienced lawyer uh cross-examining uh is often you know a a good a good tutorial on to how not to cross-examine uh so you know the use (laughs) of open yeah well i mean mean, look it comes with experience i mean i i I cringe when i think about some of my earlier attempts Uh, um but uh the uh, you know the use of open-ended questions is well why did you do that sir right? yeah. you never asked that question right. <laughs> but <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> how come uh you 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 don't ask those questions in cross-examination or you do that very very judiciously i mean sometimes there is a reason to do that but uh it it's uh you know the 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 art of asking leading questions that are probative and that zero in on, you know, give, give the witness no choice, but to answer in the way that you want them to answer. Uh, that, that, that takes time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, um, in in some cases you have to you, well your 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 client is going to testify um what what how do you approach that i mean do, do you have to prepare your your client for um the testimony and and the cross examination how does that work
1: yes you absolutely do uh how do you prepare the client i mean well, first of all, you're only you're only going there when you have to. So really the client testifying is, you know, only as only as use only as necessary and as required. Um, what I try to do is I try to get them as best they can. because Some are have limited capacities. Uh, I get I try to get them to understand the law and understand the issues so if it's a self-defense situation for example and you know they're coming at you and saying well the guy was insulting me so I you know grabbed my baseball bat and pummeled him with the bat they need to understand that being verbally assault verbally uh, insulted does not justify the use of defensive or aggressive force. They have to understand that self-defense requires a reasonably perceived fear of imminent bodily harm coming to them, and not simply being, uh, being verbally abused no matter how offensive that verbal abuse. Um, Somebody hurling racial epithets, you know, at a person of color, if that's all they're doing, you don't get to beat the daylights out of that person. It's only if you are reasonably, reasonably perceive an imminent physical threat. Has the person not just... Curled epithets but have they made a threat have they made a gesture that reasonably would cause you to fear for your safety uh, do you is your resort to force the truly your only Avenue open to you because we don't have a stand your ground principle in this country thankfully Uh, Self-defense here isn't stand your ground, it's last resort. So if you have a reasonable means of extricating yourself from a confrontational situation, you're obligated to do so.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: If instead you choose to take aggressive action when you could have avoided the confrontation and avoided bodily harm, uh, you know, then, then you no longer can avail yourself of self-defense. So, yeah, you know, that's just an example where the person has to understand the parameters of the law. You know, maybe not, not to the extent that a judge or, or a trained lawyer does, but they've got to have a rudimentary understanding so that they say the right things if they, if they testify
0: about their actions. Right, sort of, uh, just uh, taking a step back and looking at the criminal sort of justice system as a whole, um, there have been some uh, recent changes uh, to criminal procedure, and I just wanted to sort of get your take on um, on these. Uh, one recent change, which was upheld by the Supreme Court, was getting rid of peremptory challenges in uh, jury selection. Do you think that has a detrimental effect on the rights of accused to have a fair trial?
1: Yes, it absolutely does. It's uh, a very short-sighted, very ill-considered change in our law. And in fact, I mean, this this came out of the Clayton Bouchy case in Saskatchewan, where uh, an Aboriginal uh, victim who was who was shot dead uh, by a a farmer, a white person. Uh, the, the in in that case, the the, the, the government response was to remove p- peremptory challenges because there were no Aboriginal members of the jury. So somehow it was deemed to be unfair to Aboriginals or to the victim in that case. But I mean, think of the. Number of Aboriginals who face criminal charges. More often than not, sadly, uh, Indigenous offenders and uh, the, the Indigenous population is grossly overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So, what's sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, and you're going to have Indigenous offenders unable to have any ability to affect the composition of, of juries uh, when, when they're on trial because you effectively now take the first 12 people. It's, um, it's very misguided and, and and look, you can, you know, jury selection is again, it's, it, it's not like what you see on, uh, you know, from the U.S. side where there's these lengthy voir dire where they interrogate potential jurors up, down, and sideways, and there's all kinds of fairly complex laws affecting the composition of juries. Here, it's always been a much more rudimentary process. You have challenges for cause, but they're, they're very, very restricted in, in scope, always have been and always will be and what you're left with as a defense lawyer and as a crown is just your gut and you people would come up and you had your 12 peremptory challenges and uh you know if somebody was glaring at your client you'd say uh thanks but no thanks to that person um you know and 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 you know the crown attorneys too i mean if if you know if they saw somebody who for whatever reason, just instinctively they, you know, who's there in a you know Metallica shirt with tattoos up and down their arms and you know <laughs> they, might, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they might think they don't want that person on the jury and and you know I'm not critical of that determination. I might want that person, but uh you know uh, again, it, it, we had an equal number of challenges. Somehow it always worked out that the defense would challenge more than the crown, but no, that's just the way it is. And, um, but, but it, it, it allowed you at least to affect, you know, to some extent, what instinctively you thought might, might work to your favor. And, and it was even handed. The crowns had the same number of challenges as you did. So, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, yeah. Uh, that that change in the law is not a popular one. I haven't had the pleasure of having a jury trial since the changes came in, but I'm not looking forward to basically being stuck with the first twelve that get whose names get called.
0: Yeah. And um another change that they made was um to the rules in, in sexual assault trials. Where um after the Giangomeschi trial where now um, you you have to bring an application to um, enter some evidence and the complainant can be there and have their lawyer to sort of challenge that?
1: Well, what you have to do, but actually it's already been challenged successfully at Superior Court level recently, what the new provision says is that if if, if my client is charged with sexual assault and I'm sitting on a whole bunch of communications electronic communications from the complainant that i'm intending to use to cross-examine that complainant on i have to disclose that in advance to the other side which makes absolutely no sense you know they they didn't like the fact that gomeshi was acquitted because of the extensive resort that Ms. Hannon had to uh, had, uh, you know, volumes and volumes of uh, contradictory uh, texts and emails from uh, from the various complainants, and 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 people didn't like the result, uh, so they brought in this law. It's already been struck down know at the Superior Court level I mean it's it's going to head up the it's going to head up the ladder uh, it's going to be litigated more fulsomely obviously at the Court of Appeal and I'm sure ultimately the Supreme Court we and will see where that one where that ends up uh, but uh, no I, I mean traditionally uh, with very few exceptions uh, uh, the defense does not have an obligation of disclosure I mean, you do have an obligation of disclosure in the case of alibi, that's been a a uh, long-standing principle Um, in when you use, when when the defense resorts to expert evidence, we have to disclose what we're going to be uh, calling, you have to disclose a report, Uh, I mean, but those are very specific areas but you know if i'm sitting on some piece of evidence that's going to demolish the credibility of a crown witness having to disclose that is uh, it, it really upends everything that uh every principle and 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 long-standing tradition that we've been able to operate under mm-hmm.
0: Do you have any advice to uh, law students who are interested in doing criminal defense? Uh, Advice?
1: (laughs) I mean, you know, uh, look, a lot of people go to law school and think have an idea of what their careers are going to look like. And uh, they end up in areas where they find themselves unhappy uh, or dissatisfied. Um, so, uh, I think my advice is more general than specific for people thinking about criminal is, you know, just, uh, try to find an area that you enjoy and get some measure of satisfaction out of, uh, It's not an easy profession in any of the areas, and there's a lot of dissatisfaction, career dissatisfaction across the board, no matter what you're looking at. Every area has its own um, source of frustrations. Criminal law, I think, is very dynamic. Uh, It gets you into court if that's what you like doing it's uh, it it's the most sort of uh, you know uh, lawyerly uh, area of the law that you can do if you' you know if you think in terms of what we do is uh, duking it out in courtrooms uh, you're not going to get that in any other area of the law and c- civil litigators sit and write letters to each other <laughs> uh, you know and draft affidavits and and things like that once in a while once in a while they go to discoveries where they ask lots of questions of, of the other side but uh it you know it's a strategic game uh through and through so you know if you like the cut and thrust of an adversarial uh, proceeding then criminal law is great uh the clients can be a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) Clients are an endless source of frustration for anyone practicing in this business, both in terms of financially and in terms of taking instructions and whole other area of, uh, yeah, I don't know what to to say there other than, you know, uh, Follow your instincts
0: and, and hopefully find what you enjoy doing. Our guest uh, for today has been uh, Jacob Stillman. Uh, Mr. Stillman, thank you so much for being part of The Law School Show. All right. Very welcome. Look forward to seeing what you put out there.
1: You've just been listening to The Law School Show.
0: You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice, right to your earbuds. Catch it all here,
1: next time, on The Law School Show.